The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Genesis, chapter 50, beginning with verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am the place of God. As for you, you meant all evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide you for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Makur, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. If you're new here, uh, I do want to welcome you. Thanks for coming and gathering with us for this Sunday morning and uh, worshiping with us. We've got a, I've got a couple quick announcements. Number one, um, if you are new to Sacred City Church and you'd like to find out a little bit more after our gathering, just about what we do here, uh, we have a visitor forum. We do it every, uh, we do it uh, once a month, the second Sunday of each month. It's going to be in the cottage right next door. We'll have a light lunch there. So just right out about 15 minutes, 20 minutes after the service, um, we'll get started. So if you want to pop in right there, I'll be there. I can answer any questions for you, tell you a little bit about our story, um, and, and uh, hopefully just give you a little bit of our vision and, and what we're doing. So if you're new to the church, want to find out for some more information, immediately following the service uh, right next door. And then second, we, have a, we love babies around here. We love kids. We think they're a heritage from the Lord. We're good at making them. We make a lot of them. We make good-looking babies, all right? And uh, uh, I, I want you to know and hear from my heart, moms especially, okay? Dads probably don't care about this because we have a switch. <laughs> Thank God for that switch. That switch is made for football. You switch it on, I don't hear no kids. All I see is the TV. That's all I got, all right? What kids? But moms don't have that switch. Well, maybe they do, but they don't use it in church. And what happens a lot of times is the baby starts fussing and mom starts freaking out. Right? Oh my gosh, this is going to be a huge distraction. Everybody's going to hate me and look at me like I'm a terrible mom. Um, no, they're not. And if they do that, whoa, if they do, that's their own issue. Right? Uh, we, I love to hear the babies. So if a baby cries, it doesn't bother me. Literally, if I can't preach, if I can't out preach a baby, then I've got issues anyways. Okay? So we don't really care. Seriously. Now, if, you know, if, if it's having a complete meltdown and you want to take, take her out or take him out, that's completely cool. But I expect to hear babies in the, I, I, I love to hear babies in the, in the service. So don't, 
Don't freak out about that. Now, we do have two things for you if you do want to take the baby out. Number one, you can, take, uh, you can go up to the balcony. And if you, you, know, you need a nurse or whatever, you can go up in the balcony. That doesn't, that doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother us. And then secondly, starting next week, um, they, they're remodeling, we're remodeling downstairs, if you haven't noticed. And when you first go downstairs, there's a, a new room that's been created. It's got some chairs and, and some stuff down there. We're going to run a speaker, down, speaker downstairs. So you can, that's basically going to be a nursing mother's room. In the future, we can have a TV down there and we'll have a, a stream of the sermon down there. But um, starting next week, it looks like uh, we will have a speaker down there for you. So just wanted to get that out there, let you know that your babies do not bother me. Every time I hear a crying baby, I'm just reminded that you chose life. So I'm thankful for it. Let me pray and let's get started. Father, I thank you for your grace given to us in the gospel. I thank you for this uh, time that we've spent in the book of Genesis. I know as we come to a close that you will speak once again to your people. You will speak uh, not because I'm anything great. uh, I am a fool. But you will speak because your word is great, because you are true, because you are real, and you love your people. Um, Your word brings us to life, Father. So I ask this morning that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and very little of me, that you you would help us hear through the ears of faith this morning what we need to hear from your word, and that you would do the work of glorifying the Son, and, and the Spirit would glorify the Son, and the Spirit would glorify the Father this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, <clears throat> I'm pretty stoked because today is the day. It is finally here. If you've been with us very long, we've been uh, studying and preaching through the book of Genesis for over a year. Okay? So we've been in this, in this book of the Bible for over a year, and today we're finally bringing the book of Genesis to a close. All right? So I am uh, I'm pretty thrilled. I'm, this is going to be the best two hours of your week. Um, so Genesis is, is ending now. You think I'm joking. <laughs> Genesis ending in a fitting way. It ends with a story of grace and forgiveness. I say it ends in a fitting way because if you've been with us very long, you've come to realize that Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first book of the Bible, is really all about how sinners can be reconciled and forgiven. See, that's one of our foundational needs as human beings. Most of the time we don't know it. Most of the time we think that all of our little phobias and all of our relational problems and all of our personal sins and mistakes are are just a result of bad circumstances, things from outside of us. But what the Bible says and what Genesis teaches is that we human beings are at birth enemies of God. We are on the opposite side of a battlefield and our wills are woefully opposed to each other. That we sin... Because we are sinners. Whoa. We sin because we are sinners, not the other way around. You don't become a sinner by sinning. You are a sinner and then therefore you sin. And Genesis tells us why this is the case. Genesis tells us how this all happened. That it's not the way things um, have always been. They were perfect at one time. And God says that this is not the way things will always be. That he is right now in Christ making all things new. And someday our wills will be set free. In heaven or in the new creation we will finally stop being at odds. And being at war with God. And we will then... Our, our wills will be freed, so then we'll want only what God wants us to want. We'll only want more of Him. 
our wanter will want correctly. Right? Right now, our wanter is broken. Right? We want things that aren't good for us. Correct? So the book of Genesis is really the beginning of the story of recreation, the story of redemption, the story of reconciliation. How can man and God be reconciled? How can we regain a relationship with our creator? How can our souls once again find their rest and peace in the bosom of a heavenly father? And then out of that, how can men and women be reconciled to each other? How can we live in relationship with each other when we sin against one another? Right? We lie, we cheat, we steal, we gossip, we slander, we get jealous, we look down on people who are different from us, we hurt the people closest to us, knowingly and unknowingly. Genesis answers all those questions for us, and once again, in the closing of this book, Moses, the author, will once again show us a picture of what that looks like. How are we forgiven? And then how do we forgive those who have wronged us? That's where we're going this morning. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. We're going to go verse by verse through this. This is it. We're closing the book. Uh, You can open up your app, open up your smartphone. Genesis chapter 15. I want you to move along with us. This is what uh, we, we teach... Uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible. So it's great that you follow along with us. It can help you. When you're there, say there. All right, here we go. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. Okay, now for us to understand what's going on here, if you're new, you need to, we need a little bit of backstory. So let me give you a little bit of backstory. Okay, um, Joseph has got 11 brothers, okay? There's 12 boys, they're all the son of Jacob, and they're living, and basically God chooses by sovereign election, he chooses Joseph. He's going to lift Joseph up, and he's going he's to make Joseph kind of, uh, Joseph has this dream, he stands up, everybody bows to him. Joseph's a young teenager, so he doesn't go home and, 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 you know, seek the Lord about this. He goes and he rubs it into the nose of his brothers. Whoa, hey guys, I had this dream. What do you think it means? I'm awesome and you're bowing to me. What do you think that means? Could you throw me the interpretation? Read that in Greek or Latin for me. And the brother, I know what this means. This means we want to kill you. And even, even dad kind of exalted Joseph. He was the special son. He was the favorite child. He got the new clothes and they all had to wear, you know, just the regular stuff. He had this fancy coat. He, so everybody knew he was the favorite son. So Joseph was this arrogant, proud, little punk of a young man. And his brothers hate him. And then through all these divine circumstances, it's really crazy how it happens. Because one day the brothers are out with the, with the sheep and... Jacob, Joseph's dad goes, I want you to go check on the boys. Now, you know, that's just a bad, you're the youngest son already, your dad's favorite, and now you're going to check up on your older brothers, your little tattletale. This is a bad position. Go check up on the boys. So Joseph runs out, he can't find them. Just so happens he runs into this dude, he goes, oh yeah, I just heard, I overheard where they're headed, they're headed this way. He tells him where they go. So then jo- so Joseph, like, sovereign little encounter, he finds the brothers. The brothers see them coming from a, see him coming from a long way off. And they say, here comes that dreamer. 
finally our opportunity to get rid of this little punk. So the brother, so Joseph runs up and the brothers grab him. They, they're, they're, they decide to kill him. And then Judah, one of the coldest, one of the brothers with the hardest hearts, he goes, whoa, 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 don't kill him. We kill him, then what? Let's sell him. It's just so much better, right? Let's sell this little punk and make some money off him. So the okay, let, yeah, let's do that. So they throw him in this well, this empty well. And these traders come along just by happenstance. And they say, let's sell him to these guys right here. So they take him and they, they take him out of the hole and they sell him. And he goes into Egypt. He gets delivered into Egypt as a slave. So that's Joseph. 17-year-old punk gets delivered by his older brothers, gets betrayed by his own family, and gets sent into Egypt. Right? He's in Egypt. Um, for a long time, about 20 years, give or take, or 13 years, give or take. And he's, he's um, exalted up. And then he gets accused of rape. He gets thrown in, back into prison. He didn't do it, but he gets thrown back in prison. And eventually he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh exalts him out of this prison and puts him, makes him into the prime minister of Egypt. Okay, so that's kind of the backstory. There's a lot of family drama going on in this backstory, right? A lot of family drama going on. And now... Um, Joseph and his brothers, if you remember the story, they reconciled. He kind of created this elaborate plan to get the brothers to admit their sin, to own up to it. And they do. And then, and he, he totally forgives them and he gives them grace. And now they move because of a famine. They move back into Egypt and they're, they're, they're living with Joseph in Egypt. They've moved from the promised land, dad and everybody's living with them. Okay. So they live together for another 17 or so years. So now they're all back as a big happy family for about 17 years. And then what we saw last week, Jacob, the boy's daddy, dies. And now this morning, this is what happened. Brothers all of a sudden start thinking, oh man, dad's dead. Maybe the only reason Joseph was kind to us, maybe the only reason Joseph gave us grace was because dad was standing in the gap for us. Now that dad's dead, what's Joseph going to do? See, and listen, this is what we're going to see. Even if you are a Christian, this is your basic problem. All your other problems in life stem from this one thing. You don't believe you are forgiven by grace and therefore you struggle with offering forgiveness to others. See, because of sin, our hearts have this gravitational pull towards an eye for an eye. That is because God created us in his image and we have this kind of innate desire for justice. When a wrong has been committed, we know that wrongs deserve punishment. They deserve some sort of retribution. They need to be made right. So here we see Joseph's brothers, they don't know if Joseph has really forgiven them. Maybe he's just been playing nice for 17 years because dad's been around. Maybe now that dad has died, Joseph's true heart is going to come out and he will retaliate and seek revenge for all the horrible things that we did to him. This makes sense, doesn't it? Can we resonate with Joseph's brothers here? Do people really change? How could he forgive us for what we did to him? See, this type of thinking really comes down uh, 
to, to our own hearts that say, I know I wouldn't. I would seek revenge. You're going to treat me bad? I'm going to treat you bad. You can talk about me, I'm going to talk about you. You can slap me in my cheek, I'm going to knock you out. <laughs> right? I would make them pay. These punks hurt me, they sinned against me, and I have a right to pay them back. So these brothers walk into Joseph with that mentality. There's no way he could forgive us for what we did to him. There's no way he could really continue to love us and give us grace. So I bet now that dad's out of the way, I bet now he's scheming. Now he's planning. Now he's going to crush us. This is the way of the earth, right? This is human. This is Facebook. An eye for an eye. Retaliation is the only option or else I will look weak. Right? So I want you to see the basic motivation for this is fear. I'm afraid I might lose something. I'm afraid I might lose reputation. I'm afraid I might lose some cash. I'm afraid I might lose some security. I'm afraid if I forgive you, I will lose something. I'm afraid of what will happen if I just let you off the hook. So because the brothers don't really believe that Joseph has forgiven them, look what they do. Verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, "Um, yeah, uh, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph... Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Okay, now stop right here. Number one, who was the favorite son? Joseph was the favorite son. If God's going to, or if Jacob's going to speak to someone about forgiveness, Jacob's going to go right to Joseph and go, Joseph, here, here's the deal, bro. You need to forgive these boys. But Jacob, who had been forgiven freely and been forgiven much, Jacob knows Joseph's a totally different guy. Joseph has forgiven them. Jacob never said this to Joseph. So what do the brothers do? The brothers are afraid. The brothers are fearing condemnation, fearing judgment. So what do they do? They lie again. They scheme again. They come up with this plan, all right? They're going to use their dead dad as leverage. They're trying to use the emotion of the moment. Like dad has just died. They spent 70 days mourning him and burying him back in, in Canaan. And they've come back to Egypt. And now they're going to use this emotional moment to manipulate Joseph. They're trying to rig the jury here. And it's interesting. Why would they try to rig the jury? Because they don't believe they're standing before a brother. They think they're standing before a prime minister. See that? They're so afraid. Their fear has changed. Now this relationship, it's not my brother. It's my boss. It's a jury. It's a judge. It's the prime minister. So what do they do? They lie. And then look look how Joseph responds. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, (laughs) if if you've been with us for the last few weeks... Joseph is an emotional dude, okay? He is weeping a lot. I think he might be, other than Jeremiah, maybe he's crying more than anybody in scripture, right? I don't know if he's got some kind of, you know, his time in prison, gave him some post-traumatic stress syndrome. Things get hot and he just bawls, right? But understanding this story, if we're going to understand it rightly, this is, this is, there's two questions we have to ask of this 
of this text. Number one, why is he crying? And number two, what does he say? Okay, those are the two big things that we have to answer in this text if we're going to rightly understand it. Understanding this story is absolutely dependent upon understanding what motivates Joseph's weeping. Why is he crying? And this is what we're going to see. Joseph's crying because his brothers still don't get it. They still haven't grasped his motivation. They still are missing the gospel. See, Joseph isn't scheming. He's not manipulating. He doesn't have some hidden agenda that will serve his own purposes. I don't think people to, I think people today aren't much different than Joseph's brothers. They're always looking for an end game. They look at the church with deep suspicion and cynicism, and rightly so. Rightly so. The church has made many mistakes in the past. Preachers are sinners too. There's guys that are in it for the money. There's guys that do it for all kinds of different reasons. So, rightly so. But I want you to see this. I think it's important for us. Joseph's brothers, they've grown up in a Christian family. They've seen God forgive them. They've seen God give them grace over and over and over again. God has literally saved them from starvation multiple times. He has spoke to them about their present, past, and future through their father. But listen, so they've had all, guys, they've been around the gospel. They've been around God. They've been in in the environment with him, but still they don't believe the gospel or still they don't get the gospel in their core. It's kind of like this. Every afternoon um, I get to my office and I walk in and it's hot. It's like 78 degrees in my office. So I walk over every day and I find the thermostat and I go and I push that thing down, get it down to 68. And then I go back to my office, right? Feels great all afternoon, but I don't know what happens a couple hours later at night. What? I don't know. But by the next day, it's 78 degrees again in my house or in my office, right? Our hearts, listen, our hearts are a lot like that digital thermostat that has been set to 78 degrees, See, you can walk up to the thermostat, you can push the down button and change the temperature to a cool 68 degrees and and get that AC to kick on. But that change is just a temporary change. See, if your thermostat is set to 78 after a little while, after a few hours or after a day, that thermostat will set itself back to 78, right? That's what it's going to do. That's similar to how our hearts work. See, when we believe the gospel, when we see the work that Jesus has done and God gives us grace by taking upon himself all of our sins and all of our shame and then in response, filling us, literally filling us with himself, this sets our heart to grace mode. So when God saves us and changes us and fills us with his new life, this sets our heart to grace mode. Right? We can actually feel the change many times. We feel free. We feel forgiven. We feel quick to forgive others who have wronged us. But before long, our hearts naturally reset themselves back into an eye-for-an-eye mode. See, that's the natural mode of the human heart, and it's called religion. 
Tim Keller summarizes the difference between religion and the gospel like this. Religion says, I obey, therefore God accepts me. The motivation of my heart in religion is based in my fear of judgment and my own insecurity. But the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. My motivation is based on grateful joy and hopeful grace. In religion, I obey God in order to get things from God. In religion, I obey God in order to get things from God. But in the gospel, I obey God for God. I obey God to delight in him and to to resemble him. Now, do you see this in the text? I want you to look. Joseph has, if you've been with us for a long time, you know, Joseph has forgiven his brothers at least 20 years ago. For the past 20 years, Joseph has been nothing but gracious to his brothers. He has clothed them. He has fed them. He has exalted them to a high position. He's given them a job. He's provided for their kids and provided for the family, provided for the future. Joseph has forgiven them. But here they are walking into his presence, doubting his intentions because they don't feel forgiven. Their hearts have reset back to religion. They've forgotten grace and they've stepped away from the gospel. So what does Joseph do? What does Joseph do? I'll tell you what he does. He gives them another dose of gospel sauce. That's what he does. Verses 19 through 21, he gives them another dose of the gospel. This is, and I want to show you, when we get, we're going to get into it here, but this is why we, at Sacred City Church, we, we call ourselves a gospel-centered church. And we believe all of our problems come back to this gravitational pull we have away from grace. This pull towards religion, towards saying, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Instead of, I'm accepted by grace, and out of that now I obey. See, our hearts are hardwired for an eye for an eye religious mode. Listen to what Martin Luther said in his uh, introduction to the book of Galatians. He says this This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Listen. The gospel. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, that we should teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. So Martin Luther says. He says, we so forget the gospel, we have such a gravitational pull into religion and away from believing in grace, that we should know it well, we should teach it to others, and we should beat it into their heads constantly. Okay? At Sacred City, every Sunday... Every single Sunday you come to this gathering, we will present the gospel to you at least three times. Every single Sunday. I'm kind of pulling back the curtain and letting you see some of the insides here. Right? This is our attempt at beating the gospel into your head and into my head. See, every Sunday we present the gospel through our liturgy. God calls us. We're sinners. We've been out doing our own thing, rebelling against God all week long. 
and our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And God calls us back to worship him. We repent of our sin. He, he affirms us. He absolves us of our sin. Right? We worship him. We profess our faith. And that's a picture of the gospel. God calling sinners, justifying the ungodly, and, we, and us worshiping in response to it. And then the second time we present the gospel is in the sermon. Every single week, the gospel is going to be the meat and bones of the, ser- of the sermon every week. And then the third time is every single week, we present the Lord's Supper. The broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. And that, again, is a visual and a tactile depiction of the gospel. So every week, we present the gospel at least three times. And we do that because we believe that the gospel is the answer to every problem that we face. They come down to a belief problem. And listen, we believe that all of us, we come into this gathering like these brothers come to Joseph. That's what I know about you. You come into this gathering this morning hardwired for religion. If you, were, if you did really well this week, you kind of come in with a swagger. I'm excited to worship God. I was a good boy this week. I read my Bible. I prayed. I even witnessed to a coworker. I served on mission. I did. You kind of walk in with a swagger. You feel like God accepts you because you've been pretty good this week. Or he's more happy with you because you've been pretty good this week. That's religion. But then there's many of us who who come in and we come in carrying heavy burdens. We come in doubting grace. We want to believe it. We want to believe that God accepts us because of the work of Jesus. It has nothing to do with my own merit and my own morality and my own... We want to believe it, but it's really hard to believe. And sometimes our hearts fail us and we say to ourselves, maybe it's just too good to be true. And like Joseph, Jesus weeps. Listen, you might be the most religious person you know. If you are, you probably don't know too many people. You might be the most moral person in this room. You might be better than all of us. Your insights and your views and your doctrine might be airtight. But is your heart cold towards others? Do you get really upset when people criticize you or disagree with your views? Do you avoid people who get on your nerves? Do you have a hard time being in relationships with people who have wronged you? A whole lot easier to write them off, look down on them, dismiss them as fools or ignorant or whatever, any label you want to put on them. Listen, if you do, you've, your thermostat has reset to religion. See, this might, be, this might be because you thought believing the gospel was a one-time occurrence. See, we think, well, I, I believed the gospel when I was a teenager. I still remember that day at camp. It was awesome. I was a teenager. I gave my heart to Jesus. I got dunked, so I'm good, right? I'm in. I'm a Christian. I'm saved by grace. Now listen, that might be true. But Joseph 
shows us the true test. It's the same test that Jesus said would mark true Christians. And this is where it's going to get really quiet. Can I ask you, this is the test. How do you treat, how do you treat those who've wronged you? Do you have people in your life that have genuinely hurt you, that have genuinely wronged you? How do you treat them? How do you feel towards them? Listen, what we're going to see in the rest of this text, Joseph shows us what a life drenched in the gospel looks like. He shows us the undeniable and unmistakable power that belongs only to the Christian that's found in the gospel. See, Joseph displays for us how a Christian forgives and loves their enemies. Listen, religious people come to Jesus to get forgiven. Please hear me this morning. Religious people come to Jesus to get forgiven. Christians get forgiven and then offer that forgiveness even to their worst enemies. Religious people say they're sorry. Religious people beg God and when they sin and they do something you know, that's against their own morality or against their own standard, they repent. It, may be to, it could be to any God, they still repent. Religious people repent of their bad things. But it stops there. It's very consumeristic and individualistic. It's all about me. Christians realize that I get forgiven by God and that forgiveness doesn't stop here. That forgiveness is meant to turn me into a forgiver. I'm a forgiven man and that's meant to turn me into a forgiven, a forgiver. I come to God like Joseph's brothers and through the grace of God, I get turned into a Joseph who forgives. We're redeemed to be a mini redeemer. Miroslav Volv, he was, he's a Croatian theologian. Um, he, he, he existed, his, he grew up in Croatia right during, you know, the, the, the war and the, um, all the genocide that was going on over there. And he, he literally witnessed, um, you know, ethnic cleansing, um, the raping of the, all, all the women in his family and, and the murders and just absolutely horrendous things. And he's a um, brilliant theologian and he speaks a lot on forgiveness. So if anybody gets having a debt that needs to be paid, it's this, it's this man, right? He, he's seen some horrors that many of us have probably, it's only in our nightmares. And this is what he says about what is forgiveness. He says, the heart, I'm gonna quote him a few times tonight, today. The heart of forgiveness is a gener- generous release of a genuine debt. A generous release of a genuine debt. And when we've been wronged, there is a real debt there. There's something that needs to be paid. But forgiveness is a generous release of that, of refusing to seek payment of that debt. And here we see Joseph, right? Joseph, the Christian man, the man who's been shaped by the gospel and shaped by the grace of God. We see him at his very best. When he's giving and he's forgiving, he's displaying to a graceless culture. He's displaying to his graceless brothers 
The shocking and debt-canceling grace of God. This is what our culture needs to hear. This is what your neighbors, they get morality. Oh, wow, you're a really good person and you plant gardens and you feed people and you go serve. They just think you're arrogant. You do that because you want to feel better. You do that because you're a philanthropist. You do that because you're an American who wants to feel better about themselves. But when you forgive someone that has a genuine debt, that there's a genuine hurt, and you can release them, this is displaying to the world a power that's found in the gospel that there's, it's not, nowhere else to be found in our culture. It's nowhere else. And that's what Joseph is displaying. Listen to this quote again by Miroslav. Forgiving the unrepentant is not an optional extra in the Christian way of life. It's the heart of the thing. It's the heart of the gospel. Why? Because God is such a forgiver. And Christ forgave in such a way. And you know what? That's what he says. We also bear the burden of forgiveness because when we are forgivers, we are restored to our full human splendor. We were created to mirror God. Anything less is really a Judas's kiss on our own cheek, a betrayal of ourselves by ourselves. He says, you were created in the image of God. God is this graceful forgiver who forgives the unrepentant. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God saves us. Before we repent, God saves us before we clean up. God saves us before we're moral and good. God saves us there. So then that gives us this new power to mirror God and to forgive those who are even unrepentant. They've hurt us and they've never came and said, I'm sorry. The gospel gives us that power. So how? How do we forgive those who have seriously or grievously hurt or wronged us? Look at the text. See how Joseph does it. I think we're going to see three things here. Three crucial components for a Christian's heart to be able to live in grace. If you're taking notes, these are the three gospel-centered pieces crucial to a Christian's ability to forgive. Number one, I'm just going to give them to you real quick. Number one, Joseph is bankrupt in himself. Number two, he, but he's rich in Christ. And number three, therefore he repays evil with good. Number one, Joseph is bankrupt in himself. Look at um, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Number one, Joseph is bankrupt in himself. Am I in the place of God? Why would Joseph say that? See, Joseph has a... He's got a good theology. He's got a solid understanding of who he is and who God is, the creator and the creation and the separation between. See, Joseph is saying, I'm a sinner. Who am I? I'm just a sinner. Who am I to hold you and to to demand a debt to be paid? Only God is holy. Only God has never sinned and never done wrong. Only God is the one who can demand the debt back. I'm a sinner. And I've been saved by his miraculous grace. Only God is truly innocent and has a right to judge sin. Joseph is bankrupt in himself. Now listen, this is, this is crucial for us. If you, in order for you to forgive others who've wronged you, 
you've got to be able to see yourself as a sinner. Miroslav in his, in his book, as he's talking about how we forgive, he says, what we do, this is, this is exactly what we do right here. When someone has wronged us, you know what we do? Oh, how dare they? And what, what we're trying to do in that moment of where we get righteous, right? We feel righteous is we're, we're exalting our, we're taking ourselves out of the company of humans. We're no longer sinners in our own mind. We are now God and that person is a sinner. So what we try to do is elevate ourselves to God-like status and demean them into this, you know, you're not even human. You're just a sinner. You deserve judgment. Basically, I'm saying I'm God and you're a sinner, so I can't forgive you. But Joseph, he shows us a much better way here. He doesn't hold the brothers in unforgiveness, nor does he just let things be. Come on, I know there's some people in here that do that. Oh, I'll just ignore it. Just hurt by everyone, taken advantage by everyone. It's that victim you just always took advantage of, always took advantage of. I'm never going to say anything. I'm not going to stand up to him. I'm not going to acknowledge that it was a sin and it was a wrong. I probably deserved it. The gospel gives us so much, a beautiful way of dealing with with sin and with our enemies. Look what Joseph says. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? I'm a sinner. I'm bankrupt. Look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Stop right there. Joseph doesn't whitewash this. This is a mo. Joseph's weeping. His brothers have betrayed him. His brothers have cursed him. His brothers have sold him into slavery. And he looks at them and he doesn't go, oh, no big, no big deal, guys. I get it. There's boys being boys. He goes, first off, I, I'm not going to judge you. Am I in the place of God? I'm a sinner myself. God has forgiven me so much. How could I not forgive you? And then he goes, but you did mean it for evil. What you did was wicked. What you did was wrong. What you did was a sin. What you did was hurtful. So what do we do with this? See, this is where our world, if we acknowledge a sin, then we got, it's got to be judged. We got to do something. How does Joseph deal with this? Number two, Joseph knows he's rich in Christ. See, this is where we get to see where they meant evil. What they meant for evil, God meant it for good. See, God has flipped the script. God has taken all of the brother's evil and he's used it for Joseph's good. So this has done something to Joseph. This has given him a confidence. This has given him a, he's got a divine, he's got a a God in heaven that knows how to work out even evil things for his own good. Joseph is saying, God took my worst day. The day I was in the bottom of the pit, I could hear my brothers laughing and joking and eating their lunch as they're bartering with the people that are selling me into slavery. God took my worst day. And he turned it into the foundation on which he's built the rest of my life. 
my salvation and the exaltation that I've gotten in Egypt. God flipped the script. This is a picture of the work of Jesus. Listen, for the Christian, Jesus' worst day, the day of his execution and the day that he felt like the father betrayed him, that the father turned his back on him, that he cried out. Every time Jesus prays through the whole New Testament, through all the gospels, he says, my father, daddy, Abba, my father. That's how he speaks to God. Daddy, it's intimate. But on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt abandoned. Like Joseph in the pit, Jesus was abandoned and left. But what does God do with Jesus' worst day? He turns it into our greatest day. He completely flips the scripts. The day of our salvation and the day of our future exaltation. The reason we can hope that, hope in that is because Christ was killed and crucified and buried. His worst day becomes hope for our best day. Now we've, we've got to see this. We've got to see this because Joseph knew that he was totally bankrupt in himself and that and yet simultaneously he was rich in Christ. So Joseph knew that his whole life was all grace. It was all grace. And he shows us once again what a gospel-soaked heart looks like. Look what Joseph does. As for you, you meant evil against me, verse 20, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. This is the second time Joseph says, do not fear to his brothers. I will, what? Provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the third component of a gospel changed heart. You repay evil with good. You repay, I want you to sit on that. You repay evil with good. Joseph's brothers come to him. They've sinned against him. They've wronged him. What does Joseph do? They say, hey, they come up with this lie and this scheme and they try to manipulate Joseph. Hey, dad said before he died, dad said, be good to us. Dad said, don't kill us. And Joseph weeps. He's looking at his brothers who clearly don't get grace. They, he, they clearly don't believe he's truly forgiven them. 20 years ago, this was dealt with. 20 years ago, this was under the blood of Jesus that he said, you know what, what, what they meant for, for my evil, what they meant for evil and my you know, destruction, God meant it for my good, that God redeems me. God has paid that price. He's dealt with that 20 years ago and now the brothers are standing right in front of him and instead of going, morons, How many times do I have to tell you? How many? Martin Luther, you have to beat the gospel into their head. They don't believe in grace. Their heart is set on religion mode. And this is is, is so convicting to me. 
Like, I want to go, morons. What is wrong with you? You're here because I'm gracious. Right? You, I, I've never forgotten that you threw me in a pit and sold me. <laughs> right? Forgive and forget? No. Forgive, yes. But I don't forget that. I spent a long time in prison. But I've given you grace. And Joseph's heart here. Christian, this should melt us. Joseph weeps over them. Joseph is weeping. He's saying they don't get it. They still think I'm uh, judgmental. They still think I'm going to retaliate. They still think I'm going to take revenge. They don't really believe in grace. They don't really believe they're forgiven. (sighs) I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. I want to take care of your little ones. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And it says, it says he says that. And then it, and then it kind of reiterates it again. And it says, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph comforts his enemies, gives them grace. He, Speaks kindly to them. Guys, how does your heart respond to people you disagree with? Is it warm? Do you weep? Can you speak kindly to them? Can you forgive them? If you say no, you're missing the gospel. You've slipped back into religion. See, as God, this is why being a Christian is not coming to church and being more moral, learning the rules and obeying them. That's moralism. That's religion. Has your heart changed like this? Has your heart been melted like this? The only way it can be melted is if, like Joseph, you see yourself as a sinner. I'm not God. I can't judge. How can I stand in judgment against that person that wronged me? I've wronged so many people. I've sinned against God greatly and wronged him. And he's given me grace. I cannot receive grace and then not give it. Has God done this kind of work in your heart? See, this is what he does. When he, he doesn't just make us moral, he makes us new. We're new creations in Christ Jesus. And he shows us that we're bankrupt in our morality. We're bankrupt in it. All of our good works are filthy rags, disgusting rags in God's sight. He shows us the beauty of the riches in Jesus, that Jesus is so gracious, that Jesus is on the cross dying. His father has betrayed him. And what does he say? Father, again, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We have at the foundation of our faith, the center of our faith is God forgiving his enemies. And when we place our faith, all of our trust, all the center gravitational pull of our heart, when we place that in the work of Jesus and in in, in God's salvation called the gospel, when we do that, God doesn't make us moral. Listen to me. He doesn't just wipe away our past and say, okay, from now on, be, be good. 
I change you, be good. What God does when we believe the gospel is he does the unthinkable. He takes himself and he fills us with himself. The Puritans called it the life of God in the soul of man. God takes himself and he puts it in us. And that gives us this unmistakable, undeniable power that his grace now flows through us. His forgiveness now flows through us. We are forgiven and we become a forgiver. Now, you may be taking a systematic theology class. You may be taking a Bible study. Maybe you've been gone, gone through the gospel-centered life. Maybe you've been in a missional community. Maybe, and you say, you know what? I, I think my whole, I, my whole life, I would say like Joseph, is just a result of the grace of God. It's all grace. You might even have them, how are you doing, brother? Better than I deserve. Oh, that's great. That's good stuff. Gospel-centered. I like it. You might have it down, but let me ask you this. Can you repay evil with good? I think it's impossible for the world to do this, except with that, you know, BS, do it, do it this way, but not here, right? Kind of like a woman. Oh, I love your jeans. I, I told her last week I wanted those jeans and she went out and got them this week, right? But in the face, she's like, oh, like that. That's not real forgiveness in the heart, right? That's not what I'm talking about. You have the appearance of it. You have the perception of godliness, but you have no real power. How do you respond when someone gossips about you? How do you respond? Listen, before God started changing my heart and showing me the gospel, I couldn't not respond. I couldn't. I'd get like all fidgety. Like, I'm going to call him. I'm going to text him. I'm going to Facebook him. I'm gonna, I have to confront him. I could not respond. I couldn't let my reputation be tarnished. I'm, and now I'm just thrilled. Charles Spurgeon said, hey, I said a lot of things I shouldn't have said. I was an overzealous young man. So my reputation died then. And let the reputation of Charles Spurgeon be dead. And let the exaltation of Jesus Christ commence. Let my reputation die if Jesus be exalted. Can you do that? What do you do when someone snubs you? Do you bless them? Shame on us Christians who've turned Christianity into this little set of rules that if you're really good and you're like Mr. Rogers, you can go obey them. This is impossible without the power of the gospel, without God's very own life in us. Bless your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and curse you. If you're having trouble forgiving... First of all, you have to remember your poverty. You got to remember how bankrupt you were when Christ saved you. There was nothing. He didn't look at you and go, oh yeah, I could really use that. She's, I want her on my team. He didn't do that. He looked down and saw a broke mess, a broke 
bankrupt mess and said, I think I, could, I will make something out of that. If you're having trouble forgiving, you've got to remember your own spiritual poverty. You've got to remember that you're bankrupt. That you owe God, that he has forgiven you. And secondly, you don't just stop there. Secondly, you've got to remember your wealth. You've got to remember that you're rich in Christ. That if you're a Christian, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. You have a new power. There's a new power in you to overcome sin. There's a new power in you to forgive and believe the gospel. God has given you that power with himself through the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, because of what Jesus has done, we repay evil with good. Joseph says, I'm not going to treat you in an evil way. I'm not going to think ill of you. I'm not going to speak ill of you. I'm not going to do ill of you. Tim Keller says, forgiveness is granted before it's felt in human terms. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt in human terms. When you're forgiving someone, listen, you're not saying, all my anger is gone and we're totally cool now. Oh yeah, I've forgiven them. We're cool. Like if they took five bucks, you could maybe do that, right? If they sinned against your child, right? If they abused you, if they did something horrendous, maybe they, I don't even know. I'm not even going to go into it. You can apply this. It's going to take more than that. What you're saying when you forgive is I'm now going to treat you the way God treated me. I remember your sins no more. And that doesn't mean I actually like can't remember them. What would they do? I totally can't remember. It doesn't mean that. What it means is I will now behave in a way as if you didn't do them. I will not act on the basis of them. They're not the controlling reality of my life. What is the controlling reality? We see it in Joseph. The controlling reality in his life. The grace of God and the way in which out of love, God controls all things. How could I stand in judgment over you? You meant it for evil, yes, but God meant it for good. Therefore, if I'm going to be mad at anyone, I'm going to be mad at God. But guess what? God thought your sin was so horrendous. The sin you did to me, God thought it was so horrible that he put it on his son and he killed his son. So if I'm seeking justice, all I have to do is look at the cross. The cross is where my justice is paid. The cross is where my debt has been paid. Christian, do you want double payment? Is the payment of Jesus' death not enough? The sinless, spotless, perfect man who walked this earth, who, who brought babies and set them on his, 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 his lap and let the children come to him and was kind and gentle and he never even broke a reed, they said. He was so gentle. Perfect man. We've never had a more heinous crime in all the world's existence than the perfect, spotless son of God being crucified by sinners. That, that was the payment for your debt. 
The debt that that person, you feel that person owes you. They blew up your business. They sinned against you. They broke up your marriage. They cheated on your spouse. Whatever it was, the debt that you want paid, look to Jesus. Look to the cross. See, I love this. Moses, Moses is leading the people out of, of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. And he's writing this. He's writing the book of Genesis to tell them how they got there and where they come from. And he ends the book of Genesis with this beautiful picture of the gospel. A proud young man has been reconciled and forgiven by God. He's been reconciled with his attackers. He's been empowered to forgive his enemies because of he has this huge view of God and his sovereignty over all things, even evil. And his heart has stayed soft towards God. And then Joseph dies as, a, as an old man in Egypt. Listen, Joseph was elevated and exalted to this high position but his heart stayed soft. It's a, it's a work of grace. It's a miracle. We see Joseph die at 110 years old. He's embalmed and put in a coffin. He says, hey guys, when you leave, God's going to raise you up. He's going to lead us out of Egypt one day. When you do, bring me with him. Bring me with you. And listen, they're in Egyptian slavery bondage for 400 years. And you know what happens in the book of Exodus, the next book, God raises up this deliverer named Moses and Moses leads his people out. And you know what they're carrying on the way out? Joseph's coffin. They're carrying his bones back to the promised land. And God is faithful. God will get you where he wants you to be. Joseph dies in Egypt, but God is still faithful posthumously after his death to get him back to the promised land. In order to forgive, in order to live a life that's free, that people can wound you and you can respond with grace. The only way that's possible is to have a huge view of God. He's over and above all the bad things that are happening. He's inside all the bad things that are happening to you and he's working them out. And how can I trust that? How can I trust that God really cares and really gets me and really knows what it feels like to be wounded and to be hurt? Adam, would you throw up this slide up? That slide you had for me, buddy. This is a, I think it's a poem that a guy named Edward Shalito wrote during uh, World War I. And he's in the foxholes and he's dodging bombs and dodging gunfire. And uh, this, is, this is what he writes. It's, Sounds like a hymn. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. 
If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near. Only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. No other God in all the history of all religions has a God with wounds. Christianity does. You've been hurt. So has he. We look to his hands. We look to his brow. We look to his side. Joseph says, am I God to judge you? Jesus says, I am God and I'll let you judge me. And sinners crucify the son of God. When you're hurting, when you remember the pain, when you remember the scars, look to the scars of Jesus. Look to the God who has wounds. Look to the God who is willing to come down out of heaven, put on flesh, be a man, and willing to suffer and die in our place for our sins to deliver us. No other God but one. No other God but thou has wounds. Father, this is unthinkable. No man could think of this. No man could drum up this religion. No man would dare think that the God who created all and who sustains all and who has all right and authority and stands in preeminence and holiness over all the creation, that that God would put on flesh and come down and be willing to be judged by man, to be called a sinner, to be called the devil, to be crucified as a blasphemer, as a rebel. And Jesus, you did it to save us. You did it because you love us. You did it because you're holy and you're good and you're gracious. And I pray that every single one of us, we deserve damnation. We deserve judgment. We've all sinned. We've all broken your covenant. We've all warred against you. We've all stood in the place of God and tried to condemn others. And Father, now we're at your grace. We're at your throne of grace and we're seeking pardon. And we're asking you to change us in this moment, on the spot, soften our heart. Let us look to the judgment that took place on the cross and let us forgive our enemies. Let us release those burdens that we're holding on to. We're not holding back those people. We're holding back ourselves. Our heart, this pull towards religion. Jesus, move us right now. Capture us by your grace. Stir up our affections. 
Renew us again in the gospel. Let us be your gospel people that you send out of this room to be forgiven and to forgive. What a great calling you've given us. Now as we come to your table, may we be reminded This isn't some ethereal, spiritual religion that takes place in la-la land that you came down into the here and now and you broke bread and you said, this is my body, eat it. Let us eat of your flesh this morning and take nourishment in. Let us be reminded that the holy God was broken, that our God has wounds. From those wounds, your blood spilled. We take the cup, we drink. We drink of your blood, Father, that washes away all of our sin, that washes away the sins of your people. We forgive as we are forgiven. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.